With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello. Welcome to the Stuart Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. Michael McMullen joins me again from Ireland. And, of course, this is now the last one before Snooker returns. So we spoke last week about the, uh, the Championship League. Of course, uh, it was just being announced then. And since then, of course, it's been announced who's actually in it. And that includes a lot of big names, most notably Judd Trump, the world champion, Ronnie O'Sullivan, Neil Robertson, Mark Selby. So there's four straight off the bat, plenty of others as well. And uh, ITV are certainly keen on the competition because they're going to be showing it every day from 10 to 3 in the afternoon until at least 11 at night. They'll stay on if it goes longer than that. And uh, outside the UK, it looks like it's on Eurosport as well. So um, it's, a, it's going to be a big thing, this. It's the first British sport to come back. Um, everyone kind of has been waiting for live action of some sort. And I think we've seen, uh, Michael, from the Bundesliga, lots of people who probably never watched more than a few minutes of, of the Bundesliga are now experts in German football. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, that all seems to have gone fairly straightforward. But uh, it's good to see the Germans leading the way in these things, because if they're not going to get it right, I don't think anyone is. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, Bundesliga first, Championship League second. Fantastic. And uh, it'd be interesting to see you know, how it all plays out because it's a new format. It's not the traditional Championship League format by any means, actually. So you'll see players playing on the first day and then you won't see them again for a week, even if they get through. Um, and it'll also be interesting to see what kind of approach players take. As you say, I mean, you know, there's been nothing for months. So even though it isn't you know, like the biggest event of the season or the biggest prize money or anything like it, you know, it's a chance for players to get back playing again. And for those who are in the Tour Championship, which will hopefully happen, and of course, everyone hopes to be in the World Championship, this might be just about the only chance to uh, limber up for those. But it's short matches, and you only play three matches in the group. So I think we'll see a lot of surprises. I think we'll see a lot of big names going out early on. And it's a real opportunity now, actually, as Championship League always is to some extent, for someone to come through and really make a name for themselves. Of course, it's all dependent on everyone testing negative. Everyone, when they get there, and, and I've been asked to commentate for ITV, I've got to go there two days in advance on Saturday. What happens is you get tested, you get put in a room that's been heavily sanitised, you have to stay there basically for the best part of a day, they bring you your test results the next day, and obviously if you test negative, then you can work on the tournament. Now, there's going to be around about 100 people involved, players and officials and, and broadcasters and so on, so... 
out of 100 people, is everyone going to test negative? Well, let's hope so. Obviously, there may be one or two that don't. If they if they don't test negative, they're going to have to leave immediately, and that will be the end of their Championship League run. So I'm hoping to make it through. It's not going to be the funnest day that Saturday, but it will be fine on the Sunday if the results come back and, and I'm negative and can work on the tournament. Looking forward to it, as I say, starts on Monday. Now, uh, this edition of the podcast is sort of an any other business edition because we've had a few emails build up we haven't had time to get to so we will get to them and we'll go through them during the course of this podcast um but a couple of other things before that now my sort of triple crown my pointless campaign against the triple crown gathers pace because uh, des kane from eurosport he writes on the oh, yeah. eurosport web writes on the eurosport website writes some great stuff on a lot of different sports and he's written a piece basically saying i think what i had already said which is that in snooker and you and you said this referencing ronnie o'sullivan that in, in snooker the only major is the world championship and des points out that it's actually the masters and the uk are not on a par with it they're big events but they're not on the par nothing is on a par with the world championship so that he's that's something he's written in the last few days something else that happened uh wst the governing body and the wpbsa got together with a few players online they had a little zoom chat another thing no one had heard of until a few weeks ago zoom and they had a little they called it a coffee break um which is a pun as well as uh, accurate and they discussed a few things players from different parts of the world rankings you had a few top players a few players from lower down and a few things came out of which which are quite interesting one of which is very simply that the riga masters has been cancelled um, it won't happen this year. It's supposed to be the end of July. Of course, that's the slot now for the World Championship. So that's going to be on again next year. It looks like the first event planned for the new season is the Shanghai Masters. Of course, that's an invitation event. But some interesting things were discussed um, that the players will that will be fed back to the powers that be from the players. First is, obviously, the, the flat draw system comes in, into question a little bit. Some of the events, particularly the UK Championship, we won the Home Nations and indeed qualifiers where you've got Lots and lots of people at an event at the same time might not be possible now. So the players suggested, why not go back to the previous system, the tiered system for certainly Chinese events, which would be the top 16 in the world at the venue. So you've got the top names there and then 16 qualifiers who come through. So there's fewer players going. Of course, that seems to make sense in terms of numbers. One of the problems, though, with that, of course, is the Chinese players... At the moment, a lot of them are in China. Would it be right for them to have to come to Britain, go through the quarantine system? to play in a tournament that's actually in the home country. Yeah. I mean, this is this has long been an issue anyway. It seems completely wrong anyway. But that's something that needs to be thought of. Maybe there's a way of holding over Chinese matches, but the problem is if you've got three or four qualifying rounds, that's probably not feasible. So that's going to be an issue that they're going to have to grapple with. And, of course, they'll do that in conjunction with the actual Chinese promoters because it comes down to what they want as well. We don't know, of course, how many tournaments there'll be next season, what format they'll take. But it may be even the home nations. They'll have to have some sort of qualifying beforehand if there are wasn't wasn't there talk that next season there might they might play a round of it before the televised stage even before all this happened there was mention of that i think i think it'd been discussed i don't think anything had been agreed but it might now be necessity we don't know what's coming down the line we we don't know you know there might be regulations about how many people you can have in a building at one stage that's certainly the case for the championship league next week they've had to agree with the government how many people you're going to have it's around about 100 as i say can't go over it so these are things that have to be sorted out so we don't know i mean it was discussed in this chat we don't know what the calendar is going to look like as such for next season these this event coming up next week is sort of a test event really and then the world championship hopefully as well of course tour championship as well will go ahead and end the current season. Um, it looks like Q School, from what they were saying, is unlikely to happen, which means 
will there be relegation? I mean, if there's no players coming back on other than the few that have qualified through other means, would it make sense to have relegation? All these things still to be decided. One thing the players were asked, and it directly uh, affects them, is, uh, well, some of them, some of them are already at the Crucible top 16, but the players outside the 16, they were asked, would they accept reducing the length of the world qualifying matches to best of 11? And every single one of them that took part in the chat said they would be happy with that. As I say, some of them it doesn't affect because they won't be playing in them. It would seem to make sense in terms of saving time, cutting down personnel. Obviously, the World Championship has always been about longer matches, although actually some of the early qualifying rounds, when there were more years ago, they were shorter, actually. But I think for one... Some of them. Yeah, exactly. For one year only, it would make sense. I certainly wouldn't advocate it in normal circumstances, but they're not normal circumstances, are they? Yeah, well, this, it's like everything at the moment. It's like you come up with something that isn't the norm it isn't ideal but always the bottom line is would you rather it was this way for one year hopefully or that it didn't happen at all now there's always a, a you look at the u.s open golf now qualifying has always been a massive part of that they've announced that if it takes place later in the year as planned there won't be any qualifying so there's no reason at all why world snooker wst could not say okay for one year world championship is only going to be for the top 32 because it's just not viable to stage a qualifying competition and i think to be fair they would only reach that conclusion if they had to reach it so i don't think they could really be blamed for it nobody could grumble and given the choice between that not getting the chance to qualify at all and getting the chance to qualify by playing best of 11s there's absolutely no decision to be made there for the players in terms of what they would choose Absolutely, because at one stage it was it was touch and go whether the World Championship would actually be on. So I think players, they'd rather have the chance and, uh, you know, it would be a different situation. No one is saying that will happen at the Crucible itself. It's just the qualifying. Um, again, watch this space. I'm sure in the next few weeks we will find out. Now then, last week um, I, we had a, an email from an American listener and uh, I made the point that I, I'm rather excited I'm rather excited by Americans. I think the reason it is like, and, and you'd be the same, we grew up with a lot of American culture. And this was it's yeah. slight, just before, just I think before it became sort of just commonplace to sort of jump on a plane and go there. It always seemed an exotic sort of place, America. And you grow up watching like Knight Rider and the A-Team and Dukes of Hazard, all these sort of Saturday afternoon shows. And it always seemed a glamorous place. And of course, it is a glamorous place, actually, because uh, it's such a vast place. Anyway, we had, a, we had a, an email last week from an American snooker fan. I said, any others? Uh, get in touch and what i'm hoping at the end of this is that uh, you and i get commissioned to go on a a road trip around america doing a series meeting all these snooker fans because i think that'd be really good um it'd be like Uh, i'm I'm, I'm typing up the pitch as we speak and i'm sending it off to to someone yeah well, it'd be like Ronnie O'Sullivan's series, American Hustle, without Ronnie O'Sullivan. <laughs> that's the only. That's maybe the only drawback. The Hustle. Yeah. yeah, but anyway, well, we've had, still already yeah. spent six weeks of the year in America, so you know we could meet up with him along the way. Well, not this year. He was supposed to go actually. Phil Yates, he goes a lot of America. He's supposed to go this week, but obviously has not. Um, anyway, we've had it. So the firstly, then Ben from Madison, Wisconsin. Oh wow, this is stuff. All, it's already good. He says, "My fellow American who." who emailed the show has shamed me into contacting you, especially after you mentioned how excited you are by America's listing. Ironically, Wisconsin, yeah, ironically, Wisconsin borders with Minnesota where this guy lived last week, as you may know. So I should get together with the guy for a game of snooker. I work in Milwaukee and it's approximately a three hour round trip from my home. I often enjoy listening to the podcasts and I've listened to some episodes several times. I can only apologize. Um, especially the A to Z of snooker. My wife loves the Scottish accent of Alan McManus, so she doesn't mind listening along sometimes. <laughs> On that I, I note, was hoping yeah. would say, loves the Scottish accent of David Hendon. But that's, uh, <laughs> I can do one if, if, if you want to pay me. Um, okay. Yeah, I, no, let's, let's, I'll pay you. 
you not to do it. Believe okay, fair, fair enough. So let's continue. On that note, the video Q&A Stephen Hendry's been doing on, the, on Instagram have been fascinating. The ladies with the angles, uh, my wife has watched it twice, but says their Scottish accents when they're talking to one another is like a different language. Yeah, I, I, Hendry's been doing these with a lot of – done one with Ronnie, did one with Neil Folds actually this week. They are really good actually, um, and they're all on YouTube. You don't need to be on Instagram to watch them. Uh, anyway, we continue. Any, anyhow, I got into snook when visiting family in Chester five years ago. Because of jet lag, my sleep pattern was disrupted. I found myself flicking channels and started watching late-night highlights of the World Championship. It was a surprise outcome that year as Ball Run beat the magician, 1815. So he's already got the nicknames down. Um, yeah. If there's time after all my rambling, believe me, Ben, we've got time. We've got all the, we've got all the time in the world. I was wondering what your thoughts are about... Yet. I was wondering what all your thoughts are about plans for China after the lockdown is lifted. Well, I sort of mentioned that a little bit already. Um, I guess the truth is we don't know at the moment. We don't know. I mean, China, the, the situation there seems to be under control, but it's it's complicated when people have to travel to another country. There might be quarantine, all that sort of thing. And so what, the way some of these tournaments are planned to run back to back, there isn't time to go into 14 days quarantine um, because that's a couple of weeks there the would have been tournaments on. So these are things that need to be worked out. I'm sure obviously Barry and the team are on top of that. He's, anyway, to continue Ben's email, he says, we're also hyped for snooker returning soon. I often wonder if I'll witness a ranking event taking place in the US in my lifetime. I'm in my 40s, so you never know. My tip for Sheffield is Ronnie to beat Judd, show the world he's not done yet. I still also hope Hendry enters the qualifiers of Sheffield again. He could do a Steve Davis and go on a great run, just like Davis managed in 2010. Love the podcast. My wife asks if Angles will be on soon. Well, I, I hope so. I haven't seen Alan for a while, obviously, because uh, we've been locked down. But I'm sure uh, he will join us again at some point. So that's uh, that's Ben. And uh, just he, to he say on that, just, hmm. just on the Chinese events. You know, I know this sounds like I'm, I'm you know joking or whatever, but I'm, I'm really not. I don't think social distancing would be a big problem at some of those venues because they're so enormous. That whatever crowd there is there, and in China there isn't the same culture of going to live sport, and from what I hear, some of the promoters actually try to discourage people from coming. But they're so vast that whatever crowd is there, they're all so spread out anyway that you wouldn't actually have to worry too much about uh, social distancing. So, so I mean, that, that's certainly one thing in favour of getting Chinese events back on. That's true. And Jason Ferguson, the WPBC chairman, he did an interview, quite a long one in the Metro last week, and he was saying that, talking the other way, Chinese players coming here for the World Championship – they've come up with all these sort of ideas like literally chartering a plane so they can all come together, putting them up in a hotel where they can quarantine themselves with a, with snooker tables that they'll install so they can practice. So things are being thought of, but we haven't got sort of definitive answers just yet. Ben actually did then email again uh, just to say, um, I listened back to take notes of your recommendations about snooker books and classic matches. As, as such, our local bookstore are receiving unusual requests from us. My wife and I will be watching the Rat Pack next weekend with our homemade toffee and dark chocolate popcorn. It's an acquired taste. That's how you know he's American. That, that little, that little <laughs> bit of info. Uh, so thanks a lot for that, Ben. It's great to know you're listening. And we've now had one from Joey in Texas. Okay? So, oh, brilliant. brilliant. And you'll like, you'll like this. It starts literally, howdy, Dave and Michael. Okay? He says, uh, my, name is jo- <laughs> my, my name is Joey Smith from Tyler, Texas. First, I'm a big fan of this podcast. I've only recently discovered it, but as a hobby woodworker, it's truly one of my favourite back-to-back listens. I discovered Snooker on a late-night YouTube rabbit hole nearly two years ago. No surprise, a Ronnie Grace's shots had me absolutely hooked, and I've binge-watched several hundred, hundred hours of content since. I'm gutted the World Snooker Championship has been postponed, but being from America, 
it's nearly impossible to stream anyway before hearing the results of a given match. I'm hoping someday snooker takes off in the US. It's a life goal of mine to learn to play. Anyway, just thought since there likely aren't many fans in the US, I want to ask a question. In your opinion, had Stephen Hendry never played snooker, who do you think would have been the person to have reinvented the sport? Well, we'll come back to that, Joey, because that ties in actually with someone else's uh, email. So we'll come back to that. But thank you for yours. And another American here, Jeff Myers. He says, hi, David, I was listening to your most recent snooker scene podcast and heard you ask for American fans to write in and let you know we're out here. I'm a snooker fan from, from Seattle. I work as a social worker in a trauma center emergency room. I'm watching snooker matches, usually ones we run in Sullivan. is one of the ways I relax and clear my head after an intense day at work. I've never actually played the game and I've only once seen a genuine snooker table at an old mansion in Victoria, British Columbia. I first learned of the game about seven years ago when I downloaded a pool app to play on my phone. Included in the app was this bizarre game featuring 15 red balls and six coloured balls. When I tried to play, having no idea of the rules, I was quickly defeated by the AI opponent. This drew me to look up snooker on YouTube as a means to find out how it was played. The first match I watched was between Ronnie O'Sullivan and Judd Trump. Not a bad way to start, is it, that? Um, mm. He says, after watching that match, it wasn't long before I was watching an endless train of matches, following the world rankings and wearing T-shirts with my favourite players. I'm wearing my Ronnie shirt as I write this. Sadly, snooker is all but unknown in the US. When most Americans see the word snooker, they pronounce it snooker. And, and no one knows anything. Chris Thorburn does that. Yeah. No one, no one knows anything about how it's played. I heard it said that in the US, snooker is an Im- immigrant's game and is played mostly by first-generation immigrants from China Thailand, Vietnam, and India. It would thrill me no end to see an American player on the world tour. Anyway, thank you for your excellent podcast. And an extra thank you for, for your recognition of American fans. No problem, Jeff. Well, of course, there have actually been a couple of Americans on the tour. Jim Rempe, who we've mentioned before on this podcast, um, was one of them. Uh, I think Corey Jewell. Right, played a couple of events. Yeah, I get the feeling Corey Jewell, the pool player, may have been on at some point. Anyway. Um, he, he and certainly played in the Q school. I do know that. Yeah, maybe. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it would be great. I think, as we said last week, if it did somehow take off, you know, you can just imagine um, how popular it could become at the moment. As you say, is a niche um, a niche sport, but it's great that you found it. And, and also, of course, all due respect to you for your job working in the uh, trauma centre in the emergency room. Obviously, I imagine you're quite busy at this time. It's a very difficult time and, and all respect to you. So thank you very much for your email and everyone else from America who's got in touch. Uh, speaking of which, by the way, we were, we were briefly, um, for some reason, in the you get through Apple podcasts, you get your chart placings if you get high enough in the charts to get a placing. And for some reason, for some reason in Turkey, we were like number thirty on the sports podcast chart. I have no idea why that would be. So, any again, anyone in Turkey wants to get in contact and tell us why you're listening, please do. I mean, it's on Eurosport in, in Turkey, so no reason why they wouldn't see it there. But it was a bit. That was like the one that stood out of all the countries. Turkey, for some reason, we're, we're you know, it's like being big in Japan. That's the old cliche of the sort of pop bands. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. As opposed to Joe Johnson, who was in a band called Made in Japan. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Yeah. Well, big, big, big in Japan was was a band with Holly Johnson and Ian Brody from the Lightning Seeds. That's right. Yeah, bit Liverpoolian supergroup. Yeah, uh, I think we've, we've really gone off the point here. But we're, dr- we're, uh, drift- we're drifting. Mostly down to me now. No, we're drifting. Okay, so anyway, we'll we'll, we'll try and pull it back on on track. So Joey emailed about you know who would have been the influential if Henry hadn't played. And I had, we had an email a few weeks ago from Chris Boggan. He's not from America, as far as I know, but he, he's written in. He said, I've been thoroughly enjoying the more regular podcasts, having listened since episode one. 
Um, and he was talking about, I mentioned this channel on YouTube showing these these matches, including the famous 82 World Semi-Final between Alex Higgins and Jimmy White. It led me to thinking, what if Jimmy had won? How would he have fared against Reardon in the final? I thought a similar thought in watching Ken Doherty against Paul Hunter in 2003. What if Paul had won? What sort of final would we have seen against Williams? Although the final we did see was absolutely fantastic with yet another Doherty yeah. comeback. Strikes me this might be an interesting topic for some legs for a podcast episode. So it's a kind of sliding doors um, idea, isn't it? What if something uh, that, ha- that hasn't happened had happened? I should say right from the start, I can't stand sliding doors, the film. I think it's twee and annoying. But I'm going to put that to one side because because this is a different version of it. I put it I put it down there with films like Love Actually, which I just cannot bear. But anyway, we're not we're not Mark Kermode and Simon Mayo. We're not talking about films. Um, not so. Yet, anyway. Well, here's, it got me thinking, I mean, specifically the ones you mentioned, that people always say this. Jimmy, though, has brought this up himself. He said if he'd have beaten Alex in that pulsating semi-final and then beaten Reardon, which wouldn't have been guaranteed because Alex only beat Reardon in 1815, he said, he Jimmy actually said it would probably be the worst thing that could have happened to him and he probably would have ended up dead in a ditch somewhere because he would have just, at that age, because he was only, what, 21, 22? 20, no, 20, 21, I think, time of the final. Well, it was 82, so... 20. So he had just turned 20. Yeah. So yeah. he he said all the money and everything would have gone to said to the extent he would have gone completely off the rails. I mean, he, he kind of did anyway, but maybe to a greater extent. So from his perspective, and maybe it's obviously putting a kind of positive spin on it himself, he says maybe it's a good thing. To, to answer the question, obviously there's no definitive, definitive answer because it didn't happen. Would Jimmy White have beaten Ray Reardon? Of the balance of probabilities, I would say probably yes. But I don't know. What do you think? I'm going to say probably no, actually. Hmm. Because, I mean, it was very close, as you say, 1815. Now, Reardon was a wily old campaigner. And, you know, Higgins probably had the wherewithal to stand up to that. I'm not sure Jimmy at the age of 20, with his attacking instincts and the way he played the game at that time, would have been able to deal with that. I think Reardon might have had his number. And I actually think he might have won it quite comfortably. But, I mean, there's no way of knowing. I'm not saying definitively. And, of course, Jimmy would have had a great chance. But just making a call on it now on a match that was played when I was five years old. Um, <laughs> just based on what I know about them and what I know about the game, I would be tipping Reardon, actually. Well, the thing is, what we can agree on is that if it had been White versus Reardon, whatever the result, it would have changed the course of snooker history. Because if Jimmy wins, sure. Jimmy White's world champion. Because if Reardon wins, suddenly he's a seven-times world champion. Yeah. And Stephen, Stephen Hendry has only actually tied. So... It's it's why that break by Higgins. It's not only the kind of strangely sort of um, hallucinatory way he made it, but it's actually to, to level up and then obviously won the decider. It's actually what it meant for snooker in terms of its history. And the other match, um, maybe not so significant in the in the sort of annals of history, Paul Hunter and Ken Doherty. Obviously, Paul fifteen nine up. Ken came back uh, to beat him. Again, I mean, Hunter plays Williams in the final. Either one of them can win. Mark was playing great that year, the whole season. I mean, he was kind of, when it got down to the semis, he was certainly the favourite of the four to win the title. I guess Paul was sort of untested a little bit at the Crucible. Obviously, you know, he was at the Masters. He By that stage, he'd already won the Masters twice. He went on to win it again, all incredible comebacks in finals. Um At the Crucible, that, that was obviously the best he'd, he'd ever done up to that point. I think one thing a lot of people would agree on is obviously if if tragedy hadn't intervened Paul Hunter at some at some stage would have been a big favourite to win the world championship at one, one, at one point yeah well th- th- we should actually explain actually because you know if we've got listeners in America and a yeah. lot of them seem to be new to the game Paul Hunter <laughs> was a three times Masters champion and wonderful wonderful player 
uh, from Leeds, who tragically got cancer and died. At, I think he was only 27 years of age. Awful, terrible, terrible situation. Um, in terms of the, the 2003 final, well, one thing that I think would have been different, Ken, to me, looked absolutely jaded for most of the Sunday because of the effort he'd put in the previous day. Uh, to come from 15-9 down to beat Hunter 17-16 on the Saturday afternoon. If Hunter had just managed to finish it off on the Saturday afternoon and then had all of the rest of the day to rest, he would have been going in in a very different situation and Williams might have uh, been facing a closer contest on the Sunday. Equally so, however, if Hunter had got himself into a stronger position going into the Monday, well, of course, unlike Ken, he would have been in the situation where he was trying to win the World Championship for the first time. And as his good friend Matthew Stevens found out on a couple of occasions that's a massive barrier to cross and sadly we'll never know whether whether he would have had the wherewithal to to cross it and just going back to, to the other thing you, you know you quite rightly pointed out Reardon would have been a seven times world champion my guess and it's all, all guesswork is that had that happened Henry would have won an eighth world championship because he has said that he lost his focus once he'd achieved mm. his goal and got to seven so, so if after 1999 he was on seven but still only tied I think he would have retained his focus and maybe gone on to win at least one more world championship. You could also say, of course, that even by winning seven, Henry would have had the Crucible record because obviously most of the mm. world titles weren't won at the Crucible. Yeah, of course, if, if Henry wins eight and eight, though, someone else somewhere down the line has missed out on one, haven't they? Um, so yeah. it's kind of it's like it's like, it's like the, the butterfly effect is sort of changing. You know, every, someone will be affected somehow. But to go back to uh, to go back to. Um, the, Joey's point. Okay, so this to me is like the ultimate sliding doors moment. So I'm going to take you back to 1981. Okay, Dunfermline High Street in Scotland. Mm. Gordon Gordon Hendry is on his stall. I think it was a fruit and veg stall, and his son Stephen and his mother Gordon's wife are walking down the high street to go and see him. And as they walk down the street, they pass a shop, and Stephen said it was John Menzies. And in the window of the shop. There's a six-foot snooker table. Now, he's coming up to Christmas, so it's November time, and his mother sort of says to Stephen, oh, what do you think of that? And he says, oh, yeah, that, that looks a bit of fun. And she later buys the table for him, and that is the start of Stephen Hendry's snooker career. And literally a few years later, he turns pro, and we know what happened after that. Now, what if he's walking down the other side of the street and they never go past that shop? This is the ultimate sliding doors moment. And he sees, I don't know, there's a shop with some golf clubs, for example, or whatever. Um and lives sort of turn on chance things like this because he'd never shown any interest in snooker. It wasn't particularly in the family. He not he don't think he'd even watched it really on TV. Obviously, it was around, but he didn't he was no more interested in that than anything else. Um, but they just happened to not only be passing that shot, but also it was coming up to Christmas and his birthday would be just after that as well in January. They were going to buy him something. Mm. He hadn't particularly requested anything. So that was something they thought of. He was 12, right sort of age for it. So to go back to Joey's question, if that had never happened, who would have influenced the game? Well, it's hard to say, isn't it? Because the reason Hendry influenced things is because he was so successful. It's not just, you know, you can play a particular style and it not be successful. But because his his attacking uh, approach was successful, a lot of people obviously copied it and it's turned, the era has, has come along um, that we're, we're in now. Now, you could say, well, Ronnie O'Sullivan coming along not that long afterwards, maybe he would have done the same. But who did he look up to? He looked up to surely Hendry as well. So... I don't know. What do you, what do you think? If, he, if Stephen Hendry had never played snooker, how would things have been different? I'm, I'm going to make my second Lightning Seeds reference of the podcast. Hmm. Uh, there's, there's a song they have, there's a line in it, your whole world can turn on a moment. And that exactly is what happened to Stephen Hendry back then. My view, for what it's worth, is that there was so much snooker around at that time. And, you know, when, when he did play it, he absolutely loved it. 
I mean, every lad tried it at some point. So my guess is that somewhere along the way he would have done. But mm. it doesn't really help us, you know, with, with Joey's question. I suppose what he's saying is if he had never played the game at all. You have to think Ronnie would have been the most likely. And I mean, every sport has changed so much in that time. I mean, you, you look at anything, really. I mean, golf, you've got all the power now and they all practice so much harder. Tennis is very different. Football is a completely different game. And so is snooker. So every sport has changed and evolved so much in that time. So somebody would have come along and started playing the shots that Henry played and taken the approach that, that he took. And yeah, I mean, I mean, it, it wouldn't necessarily have to be someone who came after Henry, maybe it could have been Jimmy. Maybe even Steve would have uh, taken a more, you know, attacking approach as the years went by. He might have felt he needed to raise the game when other players got better. Um, so it's 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 difficult to say. It's a very good question, though. Very good question indeed. Well, of course, as, as with all these issues, people listening are free to suggest their own uh, answers to them. So you can email us on anything snookerscenepodcast at mail dot com. That's snookerscenepodcast at mail dot com. Let us know what you think. But, yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, because it was in the culture to that extent, um, you'd think Henry would pick it up at some point. Although it's worth saying in Scotland, it wasn't a big deal really at that point. I mean, he was the first, apart from Walter Donaldson in the post-war years, in the modern age, he was the first successful Scottish snooker player. The other pros were, you know, low down the rankings, weren't winning tournaments. Um, and he, of course, very much transformed snooker in Scotland and it led to the John Higginses and all the others coming through as well. Um, we move on to Ollie Clark. He says... First, first off, great job with keeping the podcast going in these strange times. My name is Ollie. I'm 21 years old, originally from Portsmouth. I've just finished an economics degree at the University of Nottingham. Just for a bit of context, and by the way, that always already makes Ollie cleverer than either of us getting an economics degree. Um, just for a bit of context, I started playing Stuka at 10, played at a reasonable junior level, uh, reached the English under-14 final, stopped entering tournaments at 15 to focus on my studies, hope to pick it up the game again at uni. My question is, how should is how should snooker try to work more with universities to further promote the youth game? And then he provides a bit of a context to this, quite a long email, so I'm going to slightly skim over it, Ollie, but I guess what he's saying is there are um, university events and tournaments you can play in, but a lot of people of that age, I think, are more kind of taken with pool. It's Pool's always felt a more social game. Um, and actually, I'm not sure whether it was Ollie. It might have been someone else. I'm just skimming down the email. Someone asked me, are there any current players with a university degree? I don't think it was Ollie, it was someone else. Um, and I, I wrapped my brains. I couldn't think of anyone playing now. Uh, Patrick Wallace, um, yeah. former, former World Court of Finance. I, I know he got a degree, I think, in accountancy from Queen's Belfast. Yeah. yeah, but as for at the moment, Joe Perry, I think, did quite well in his, in his A-levels, but rather than go to university, he turned pro. He's one of the class of 92. But anyway, he's, he's saying, I'll, I'll go back to Ollie's email just for a specific question. He says, do you think more should be done to grow student Q sports, whether it be funding, coaching, or maybe just greater promotion and awareness? One of the problems, Ollie, that Snooker has, and not just in relation to what you're asking, but in general in terms of funding, is it doesn't seem eligible to get government funding. There's been sort of discussions with Sport England. It's quite difficult to get funding. That's generally true for sports that aren't Olympic sports. A lot of the sports that get, for example, lottery funding, they're Olympic sports because the gold medals and all that is great publicity and, and seem to be great for the country. In terms of playing at university, I mean, I, I played not for the university. I just played because when you're a student, you, you know, you, you have time in the day to, to do these things. Um, there are university competitions. What more can be done? I suppose, again, it's a cultural thing. You know, it's making it appeal to that demographic in the first place. But obviously it appeals to you. You know, you've been playing since you were 10 and you've carried on playing. Um, Michael, do you have any specific ideas about how to 
increase interest in the student population? No. Oh, I mean, it's it's the sort of thing I've thought about a lot over the years. I mean, how do you get more more youngsters playing the game? I mean, I think it does count for a lot that the biggest events, we're back to the whole Triple Crown discussion again, but let's just say even the World Championship and a couple of other big events are on television that's available to everybody. I think other sports maybe suffer from the fact that they're a bit ghettoised, that uh, you can't see any of the big events really unless you have the right channels. I mean, I think golf will probably suffer a lot from the fact that the Open is not shown live on the BBC and hasn't been uh, for a number of years now. So, I mean, that that's massive for snooker. And if you don't have that, you really don't have anything because people take up sport because they see it on television and they think it looks great, any particular game. I mean, that's, that's how they get into it in the first place. As for working with the universities, I don't know. I mean, I think nowadays there's so much pressure on youngsters to succeed in their studies. They probably don't have a great deal of time to play at anything other than a, on, on a recreational basis. And, and just going back, I was thinking as well, did, didn't Holty study for a business degree with the Open University a few years ago? I don't know if he finished it. I, I, I don't know. Yeah, he did. I don't know what the status of that is. I, I, I get the feeling he might he may have changed it something else or something but yeah I'll, I'll have to check with him but just to go back to all his i've just read a bit more of his email he's saying that and this is a good point i think if you you see if he started when he was 10 and, and he, he was obviously a talented junior snooker's no fun to play if you can't play so if you just start playing at university he makes the point here he says the snooker competitions have a large number of entries and entrance only 10 players can make a 50 break let alone a century most frames last over an hour he, he said that he won uh, in 2019. I managed to win the individuals of the second biggest tournament on the calendar, the high break of 29. So, you know, it, this is the problem with snooker. It's a difficult game. It really is. And pool, I'm not saying it's easy, but you can make yourself look good in pool a lot, a lot better than in snooker. He does say as well, we should mention this. He said um, this past year, Nottingham came top of the snooker and pool table for all British universities. He, he's sent a picture of him and the team with Karen Wilson. I think because uh, he played in Northampton, he must have presented the, the Midlands Cup to them. So, listen, Ollie. Good, good, good luck, Ollie, with your uh, what you do with your degree and also with your snooker career. Maybe, to be honest, you would have a better idea than us because you're the right age. How to encourage uh, like, things to, to get better? This is this is it. I mean, we, we don't we don't have a clue. I mean, you know, if you want to know how to get to young people, ask young people. I mean, there's mm. no point asking the likes of us. We're in our mid forties now. We're, you know, we don't have a clue. We, I mean, these people speak a different language to us. And, you know, you, you sit at Matchroom and there's a lad there, Jake Asby, who's really into all the social media and everything. He's a great lad, Jake. He, and, you know, we both get on really well with him. Mm. I think he's like about 26, 27. But a lot of the time, we haven't a clue what he's talking about. <laughs> so, and, you know, it, these people live in a different world to us. So I'm, you're absolutely right. It needs to be young people and students themselves who come up with the ideas. The other thing I'd say is if you're going to be really good at snooker, and I don't even mean pro, I mean, if you're going to be like a seriously handy player, you've got to start at a very early age because that's the time to do it when you're 10 or 11. You're not scarred by life. You go in, you think everything's easy. If you start trying things a bit later in life, if you overthink it. So the earlier you start in snooker, the better. And I think he said he started playing at 10. But uh, if you're getting people for the first time when they're at university, <coughs> the chances of them actually amounting to much probably aren't that great. But still, by all means, great to encourage the scene and great to encourage participation at all levels. And it's something that, you know, previous administrations have gone to them and said, are you interested in developing the game in universities? I mean, forget about it. But now with people like Jason Ferguson, obviously, and Matt Hewitt as well, so involved in the game, and they're all about diversity and inclusivity and, you know, getting people playing at all abilities and all levels that maybe now might be the right time to uh, try to develop some sort of university scene. I think that could be our tagline for the podcast. The Snooker Scene Podcast, we don't have a clue. 
That could, that could work. <laughs> I, I don't really need to tell people that, Dave. If they've been listening for a few weeks, they'll know that by now. Well, Matt Hewitt, who you mentioned, who works now for the PBSA, was pro snooker blogger. He, list, he emailed me the other day to say he'd been listening like a sort of Netflix binge session onto the podcast, one after the other. So that tells you he's run out of things to do. That's all, that's all you need to know about that. Anyway, we continue with another email. This is from Edwin O'Shea. Uh, he says, uh, where we go? He said, what I would like to hear is an assessment of which players have had the greatest influence on the game, akin to Chesnick's history. Some snooker players were great players but some also revolutionised the way in which we think about the game and how to play it. I think chess has a very coherent narrative on which players develop which types of themes that we now take for granted. It would be difficult not to have Joe Davis at the top of this list. Steve Davis's devotion to practice an all-round game forced most players to change their approach to the game. Hendry's nine-ball nine ballification of snooker by a relentless, unapologetic attacking rejigged how we think of the sport. Nobody's ever played the same again after watching these players. There's a risk that one would only include the older players in this pantheon, but I'd also put Mark Selby in this category. It's said that each player plays their own game and lets the chips fall where they may, but Selby is the first truly dynamic player who will adapt his game plan according to his own form and who his opponent is, though you could make a case for the dynamism of Ray Reardon as well. To continue the chess metaphor, John Higgins seems the master of the middle game, the 60-70s clearance to win the match. Uh... Oh, I just realised he's another American. <laughs> I didn't even notice that. Oh, wow. Where, where's he uh, from? Well, I'll, yeah, sorry, Edwin, I didn't, I didn't read down to the bottom. Very best wishes from this very average snooker player who has to settle for the pool tables of Virginia, USA. So there we go. You see, we're... Which, of we're, course... I was going to say that there's big uh, Q Sports heritage there because until last year, Virginia was the home of the uh, US Open Nine Ball Championship. Oh, yeah, of course. Well, I think, to be fair, Edwin, you kind of answer your own questions there very eloquently. I mean, Joe Davis, we, we mentioned this, I think, last week, definitely on, on a list of influence in the sport. He's right at the top in terms of significant people. He started the World Championship and everyone really learned from him. He didn't really learn from anyone himself. He played in, uh, he started in a pub um, that, where they had a table. It must have been a big pub, but this was like the early part of the 20th century um, in Derbyshire. That's how he learned his trade with his brother, Fred. And actually having his brother, I think, did help because it was someone to play against and they both kind of were, were talented at snooker. But um, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right what you say. I think certainly, obviously, Steve Davis, yes, the sort of the, the match play, definitely. But that existed before. What Davis's influence really was, was professionalism. Before then, yes. you know, you called it the professional game, but you know, people did. No one worked as hard as Davis did. He came along and absolutely committed every facet of his life to getting better and better and better. And it showed the other players, listen, if you want to keep up with me, you've got to do the same. And that's why people talk about sometimes, oh, you know, it was better in the 80s when they were all, you know, drunk and headbutting each other and on drugs. Well, actually, no, it was unprofessional. It was unprofessional. If you want to, if you want to do well at any career, you have to take it seriously. And that's why the Can players. Clarify, by the way. Yeah. Can we clarify? They weren't all drunk and headbutting no. people and on drugs. They no, were individual things that happened. And I'm aware we're talking to a new audience here a lot of the time, so we, we don't sure. want to give an, you know an exaggerated impression of what. It was no, no, no. But that's what people that's that's what people talk about. They say, oh yeah, wasn't it great yes, when they used, yeah. when they used to come in with a pint and all that. But those the people who did that weren't necessarily successful. And the players who've come along, it's not that they're boring people or anything like that. They're all interesting in their own way. It's that they've they've been professional. They've seen the way that Davis was successful in his approach, and they followed that. Now, Stephen Hendry, you're right, and we've already talked about this, was a different sort of player. He's encouraged more. 
attacking game. I certainly think Selby is a good one to mention as well because he is he's an example of someone who can adapt and can play different parts of the game. I think Judd Trump's actually become very good at that. I think Trump can use his safety game. He used it against Neil Robertson in the, in the German Masters final this season very successfully. Um, so I think, Edwin, you've, you've, you've got it spot on, really, with, with the players you mentioned. I'll mention it as well, actually. Just a slightly different angle. Dennis Taylor. And I'll tell mm. you why. I mean, obviously, Dennis was a really good player, won the World Championship, won the Masters, you know, pretty good record in a lot of other events as well. You know, it was always a big part of, in this kind of pre-TV age, you had to have a certain routine that you could do for exhibitions and you had to have a bit of showbiz about you, uh, you know, to get the work because the exhibition circuit was a huge part yeah. of the player's income. Now, Dennis took that on a stage, actually, because even before he became world champion, he was involved in doing television commentary and cultivating a personality for himself because he recognized that the snooker players were now very big stars and big celebrities. He also recognized, because he was quite you know, well into his career by then, that he wasn't going to be a top player earning a big on-table income forever. So he was the first to recognize that sort of thing, that you needed to develop a sort of persona and a media profile, just to have something to move into when the results started to dry up on the table. And you've seen that with people like John Parrott and a few others as well, who I think have made that kind of conscious effort uh, to develop that sort of all-round persona. So not necessarily in terms of influence on, on the game itself, but in terms of the whole art of being a professional and you know, making it a, a lifelong career one way or another. I think Dennis actually uh, had, a, had a big impact on that. No, that's true. And I think, yeah, there are certain players who are known by general sports fans who don't watch snooker. Dennis would definitely be one of them. He's So, I mean, just the look of him with his glasses, he's recognisable. But just like John Parrott for a while, people forget this sort of presented uh, BBC racing coverage or the betting part of it anyway. He was part of that. Obviously, yeah. nothing to do with racing other than being a fan. But because he was known, he's on Question of Sport, which is a big quiz show in Britain, very well known when he was a cap team captain on there. So yeah, there are some players who, who've been able to do that. And certainly Dennis, I mean, Dennis was commentating from when he was a top player. You know, we think of him now as a commentator, but he was he was commentating before actually he was world champion, he was commentating. So he would be a good one as well to mention. Let us know, snookerscenepodcast.mail.com, anyone else you think should be on that list. We continue with the emails. Adrian Wharton, he doesn't say he's in America, so I'm assuming he's not. But um, anyway, thank you, Adrian, for getting in contact. Everyone else seems to be yeah. today. He says, uh, for, we like the Beatles, because they went there in uh, 1963 and uh, went on the Ed, Ed Sullivan show. Uh, maybe that's a slight, a bit of a, a stretch to say that, but, you know, it, it, I sense it's getting there. It's getting into that territory. Anyway, yeah. Adrian Adrian we'll says... Gordon, at least. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, he says, first of all, thank you for putting on a great series of podcasts during the lockdown. I listened to a lot of podcasts when I was commuting, and yours is the only one I'm keep, keeping up with now that I'm not working. So... Uh, Thank you. For that. That's one in the eye for Peter Crouch, isn't it? Um, anyway, he says, he says, I have an idea. Go a long way up to put it. <laughs> there's, a, there's a step ladder involved. Anyway, I have an idea for a podcast feature going forwards, particularly while there's no stuka. And often you talk about classic matches, but many of your listeners wouldn't have been into stuka when they happened. That's a, just to stop there. It's a good point. You know, we I think we are guilty of slightly assuming everybody understands it or have seen all these all these things we talk about but hopefully when we do mention them it might inspire people to look them up or, or, or read more about them online anyway he says my idea is at the end of each podcast you, you suggest a classic match one that's available on youtube for listeners to watch and then in the next episode you can discuss it and more of us will have seen it and there'll be those of us who have seen it before that need our memories refreshing there's nothing wrong with the idea at all the only problem with it is i know for a fact that i would either forget to do it which <laughs> which happened last week with the book feature or yeah. i would just or, or i would just not watch it and then i'd have nothing to talk about the week after because i think when tournaments come back 
all this kind of nostalgia is going to go away a little bit because obviously we'll be focusing on uh, the actual events. Now, next week, for example, there's going to be snooker on for the next two weeks, in yeah. fact. So it's, it's, I'm not saying we won't do it in the future. I, I suppose it depends on, to an extent, how much snooker there is next season. And if there are going to be a couple of months without any tournaments, maybe we can start doing it then. But there's certainly there's nothing wrong with the, with the idea, certainly. Yeah. Well, I mean... There's so much of it there at the moment. I mean, um, MJT Snooker, I think. I think you mentioned it a couple yeah, of times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, um, I don't even know what you call it. Do you call that a YouTube account? Well, it's um, a channel. A channel. Just put loads of yeah. Channel, of course. Sorry. Put up, uh, see, going back to the point I was making earlier. The, <laughs> um, but uh, he's been on there and putting up some incredible stuff. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I mean, look, there's, a, there's a chance maybe he listens to the podcast. And if he does fantastic but where have you been hiding this stuff all these all these years because it, it's unbelievable and it's not just little snippets it's like whole hours with all the coverage surrounding it as well uh, loads of great matches from long long time ago if you're new to the game i mean obviously going to youtube is the best way to uh, to learn about the matches and hopefully you know we've given people a few pointers over the last uh, weeks and months as to what the matches are to watch but there's so so much of it there uh, i mean you almost don't know where to begin you could spend the rest of your life watching it um, so yeah, I mean it's great to have that facility now. That I know certainly when I started watching snooker, you know people would mention matches from a long time ago, and I thought I'd actually like to see that, but uh, it just didn't exist back then. Um, but now of well, course you have YouTube, so there's just so many of it there, so much of it there. So fill your booth. It's clear a lot of people over the years have taped stuff and you know got around to uploading. I mean Roger Lee is the ultimate for that. The game's sort of historian he's got a long long list of, of, of matches he, that he's recorded and and you know all sorts of things that people have no reason to remember but but roger's got them and it's clear other people do as well which is good because in a way it's sort of protecting the game's heritage isn't it this stuff you know it's happened and it's all part of the great the great narrative of the game um just another email on the back to the american thing this is from rob dunn in durham um, much in the news this week, Durham. Um, yes, I'm not I'm not accusing Rob of anything though. Uh, if for those, uh, I should maybe explain for our American listeners and indeed those in Turkey that um, there's been a, a huge story in Britain about the Prime Minister's uh, chief aide Dominic Cummings, who uh, during the lockdown basically drove to Durham, his parents' house, and there's been a big hoo-ha because everyone else was following the rules and he wasn't, etc., etc., etc. We're not have I got news for you though, so we're not going to bang on about that. Um, I th- you can probably guess what I think about it, though. Anyway, um, just a quick question for the Snooker Podcast, following on from last week's question from an American. Do you know if the World Championship or indeed any snooker tournament is shown on American TV? I, I'm not absolutely sure. I mean, a couple of the correspondents suggested it wasn't. I was under the impression it was streamed on Facebook in North America. Whether that's just Canada, I don't know. But I was under the impression that um, that because they have the D- D- zone as well, which I think goes out in Canada. Whether that extends to America, I'm not absolutely sure. I was under the impression it was. Mm. Yeah, I, th- I think I think his own coverage does go out in America. But to be honest, I, I don't think there's anywhere in the world now that you can't see it because if it isn't on TV and it isn't streamed on something like the Zone, I think any of those countries that don't have it in that way, you can watch it on Facebook. So I, I assume America would, would be the same as anywhere else in that regard. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, I guess really our American correspondents should let us know because they would know better than us again um i was under, i was under the impression it was i certainly hope so because that's the only way it's going to grow there anyway um our next email is from andrew mcburney who writes it's quite a long email i will maybe miss a little bit of it out but he says anyway i've been an avid listener to the podcast ever since discovering it a few years ago i'm a massive fan thank you to you and your colleagues for all the time and effort you put into it i hope you find it as enjoyable to do 
as you make it sound. Well, I think we're, we're enjoying ourselves today anyway. I'm not had a drink, by the way. I know we, we sound like we're kind of slightly end of term here. But anyway, he says, I really appreciate the weekly installments during the current lockdown. They've been a big help in keeping me sane and positive at an otherwise very difficult time. Having said that, I confess to being a couple of weeks behind in my listening. So I apologise in advance if any suggestions below have been covered. I know you've touched on more than on more than one of them on one occasion, but I would be really interested if you could find the time to give any of them a deeper dive. He talks a bit more about his own background. I was a teenager in the 80s, like a lot of people at the time, became a huge fan of the sport. I love so many things about it. The game itself, with its patterns, colours and angles, the skill and stamina of the players, the characters who played it, the quiet intensity of the atmosphere, the drama and absorption in watching closely fought contest. I remember with great clarity being up until nearly one in the morning with my mum watching the 85 final both of us unable to tear ourselves, tell, tear ourselves away from the screen. I was rooting for Dennis. I remember cheering out loud when the final black was sunk. I've drifted away from the sport in the early 90s when I went off to university. Well, that, of course, ties in a little bit with what we were talking about earlier on. And a new breed of, and a new breed of younger players seemed rather dour and humourless, lacking the character, personality and flair of many of their predecessors, Ronnie and Sullivan accepted. Well, again, that kind of ties into what I was saying the reason for that was because it, it became a new, more those people have observed Davis in their youth and thought that's how we've got to be. It's not that they were dour necessarily. You just didn't see the obvious sort of big parts of the character, I think would be how I would put that. My interest was rekindled four years ago when I watched the Rat Pack on BBC iPlayer. I was immediately transported back 30 years at the time when I'd become a massive snooker fan. I watched, started watching all matches on YouTube, started following the game more and more. Anyway, he, he, look, we're going to cut to the chase here, Andrew, because you've, you've mentioned four topics. Now, one of them I'm not going to talk about, and that's the rules, because you're asking about, I think Brendan Moore was on the podcast, you're asking about obscure rules that could come up and, and haven't. And I think, to be honest, it's better if I talk to a referee about that and we do do one with them in the future. But the other elements, I'm going to do a couple quickly, and then we're going to get to the main one, which is commentary, because I've had a few emails about snooker commentary. So the first one is the dress code. Andrew says, OK, this is peripheral, but it's interesting. Which players have had the most outlandish dress? Who are the smartest and the sloppiest? Why and at what point did players stop wearing afternoon standard neckties in the afternoon? Why do so many players in the 2000s wear that purple check pattern on the back of their waistcoats? Why do many so, so many players today dress in black? Why do so many players get away without wearing bow ties? And what's going on with that stupid-looking ribbon-style bow tie that aren't proper bow ties? Well, some direct questions there. The, the last one, I mean, Judd Trump wears what you describe as stupid looking i mean it's, it's classed as a bow tie that's how they can just the definition of it it's classed as a bow tie that's why they can wear them uh the players that don't wear bow ties have medical uh certificates so steve mcguire gets a rash apparently on his neck there's a couple of others i think in the same boat why they're wearing black i think the thing with snooker players they see one player do it they kind of copy them so if ronnie's worn black i guess if you're a young player you think well if ronnie does it why shouldn't i do it um the purple check t- pattern was the highland spring team so highland spring were mineral water company and they sponsored mainly the q masters ian doll stable so stephen hendry ronnie o'sullivan mark williams and so on and so on all all that um at what point did they stop wearing standard neckties in the afternoons i don't know i mean they certainly wore them in the 80s i guess early 90s it may be maybe ended it was around then yeah i mean basically you had you could wear your ties in the morning session if there was one the afternoon session um which most players did, I think. And then in the evening session, it had to be the bow tie, although you could wear the bow tie for the earlier sessions if you wanted. Where it started to change was about 87 thereabouts. And like most things, it was Barry, because what they were doing at the time was uh, a, a lot of these packages, highlights packages, particularly actually from some of the events he put on, were being shown all around the world. 
And he wanted to have them being shown without mm. the people watching them knowing whether they were watching an afternoon session or an evening session. Maybe so they might think they were watching it live. I don't know. So he then uh, ruled that all the players had to, in, in his stable, had to wear bow ties in all sessions. And maybe that was that was when it started to change. And then I think at some point it became compulsory to wear them at all sessions. And I think you're right. I think it was the early 90s. But now, of course, we've seen them come back in recent years for some tournaments like the Masters mm. and, and the Champion of Champions. The, the whole thing with, with the dress as well. I mean, you think back to the um, start of the Home Nation series when they announced the new dress code for that that was going to be unique to those to the Home Nations events. And I, I was very well aware that was happening. It was about day three before I even noticed. And I remembered, oh, yeah, they're, they're not wearing the bow ties here. So it just shows once it starts, you're not really thinking about that. You know, we've been talking about this for 20 years. But once play actually begins, you're not particularly thinking about what anyone's wearing. And purely from my own point of view, I, I, I would say that, I mean, I'm very much a traditionalist in most things. But even I would accept that maybe the whole bow ties and, and waistcoat look is, is starting to just seem a little bit outdated. But I don't really think it's, it's a major issue because uh, yeah. it's all about the game itself. Uh, yeah, I think we. I wouldn't go down the T-shirt route. I think players look smart in, in shirts as well. The truth is, though, you, you say who are the... Who are the best dressers, the smartest and the sloppiest? A lot of that just comes down to the people in general. Some people look good in clothes or better in clothes than other people. Look at someone like Ronnie O'Sullivan. You know, Ronnie O'Sullivan is a good-looking guy. He's going to look good basically in pretty much anything. You can stick him in a suit, he'll look good. You can stick him in casual wear, he'll look good. Some of the other players are going to struggle more to look good. Some players, I mean, Anthony Hamilton is always kind of, (laughs) the finger's always pointed at the sheriff because, you know, he had a reputation for maybe not sort of being that bothered about his sort of sartorial um, sort of look. And I'm not sure he was that bothered. I mean, actually, he was in the Highland Spring team as well, so he had that uh, that waistcoat. Go on. Well, on that point, ju- just, just to underline that, I remember a session, and I think it was even at the Crucible, where for at least a substantial chunk of the session, if not the entire session, Anthony hadn't actually fastened his bow tie. <laughs> now, unbelievably, it somehow stayed on, but it was definitely for a number of frames. It may even have been against O'Sullivan that time he played him in the quarterfinal of 2004. That just shows you how you know, unconcerned he was with how he looked. And, and Sorry, I have to say this, and I know he's a mate of ours, worst dress player, surely Dominic. I mean, come on, some of those <laughs> red shirts over the years. Well, this is the thing, though. Yeah. This is the thing. Some players make a real effort, but it doesn't mean it's always going to work necessarily. I remember, though, Alan McManus, who, Alan McManus, who is, you know, quite, I think, quite generally a conservative sort of person. He had those tartan trousers at the Crucible. He was not, not the sort of person you'd think would, would sort of do that. But it's, look, look, it's in a way, and it's the same in everyday life, what you wear is an extension of your personality. Now, it, within snooker, with its kind of dress code limits, it's not that easy, actually, to express yourself through what you wear. But, you know, players, they have had little quirky things down the years and, and have tried different things and to become known for, for different things. Ultimately, what you say yourself, Andrew, is that peripheral is, is the word, isn't it? It's all kind of it's all kind of meaningless once they start playing. Uh, very quickly, and this is not an issue, actually, that we can really discuss very quickly because it's, it's titled Politics. He says, I've heard a number of veiled and cryptic references to the political problems which beset the game during the 2000s. But as someone who was away from the sport at that time, I'd generally like to know what all that was about. Well, <laughs> well how, to, how, to compress, how to compress what all that was about in 30 seconds. The truth is there, there isn't time. The, 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 look, there's, there's a couple of things here. The old WPBSA was uh, a players association that also was the commercial body, that also was the rules and regulatory body. So they were effectively 
doing three things all competing against each other. There are a players' union who are also disciplining the players and they're also attempting to promote a sport that would work for every player, whereas, of course, in any sport, really you have to concentrate on the elite because that is the shop window. So they had all these problems. Also, they, they were voted in and out, so they were at the mercy of votes. So quite often, the, you know, the tail was wagging the dog, et cetera, et cetera. It came to a head... About 20 years ago, when a rival tour was announced, there was a long and protracted battle that ended up in court. The rival tour in the end didn't happen, but different players on different sides. Michael last week mentioned Clive's book, Black Files and Cue Ball Wizards. It's all in there. Seriously, Andrew, if you, if you want to know about it, it's blow by blow by blow in there. So I would recommend getting that. It's all in there. But I'm going to move on because I'm aware that we've been going nearly an hour already. Um, <laughs> and we're now on to our main topic, which is commentary. So Andrew says, you've touched on this this in recent episodes, particularly our styles of commentary have changed over the years. It would be interesting to listen to a deeper dive into this topic. As a non-player, I find commentary a really essential element of my appreciation of the game. What makes a good or bad commentator? What do different commentators bring? Which notable commentators of the past should be remembered and why? Who was the very well-spoken female commentator we recently heard commentating in the 82 classic matches? That was Vera Selby, I can and so if any players had a brief but unsuccessful commentary. Now, there's a, there's a couple of other people have emailed. John Jew as well. Um, he did a, a list of his top 10 commentators, which I wasn't in, but I'm not going to hold that against you, John. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'll come, I'll come back to that. Because, no, because, because actually there's a very good reason why I shouldn't be, and I'll come back to that in a moment. But there was one other person as well as I... Oh, Stephen Quinn as well. So Stephen said, um, I really enjoy a podcast full of great stories and information download and listen to them every week. I have a question, a suggestion for a section of your podcast about a debate about Stuka's top 10 commentators. I'm sure it spark a bit of interest. Um, I know from reading in the past, not all of them got on. Some could not put put in the same commentary box. So maybe a bit of mileage for a few stories there. Well, here's the thing. Okay, here's the thing, right? It's, I think it's important to talk about the sort of art of commentary. And actually, as we speak, Roddy from uh, World Snooker Tour has put a story up on their website about commentary, which he's spoken to myself Alan McManus and John Virgo about. Here's the thing. Commentators actually have different jobs. The traditional commentary model, not just in snooker, but in all sports, and you still see it certainly in football and rugby union and sports like that. You have a lead commentator and you have a co-commentator. The co-commentator is traditionally a former player. They're an analyst. They are there to analyse the game, explain the shots they think should be played, explain why maybe the player has played the shots they have, look forward to shots to come, and generally analyse the play. The lead commentator is more journalistic role. It's to provide a narrative. It's to provide context by bringing in relevant information and sort of keep a story going. So, for example, if you like, if you said, like, okay, who's the better commentator, myself or Alan McManus? It's a false question because we're not doing the same job. I'm not doing Alan's job. Alan is an analyst and he's not doing my job. I'm a lead commentator. So actually you need two lists. If you're going to do lists of best commentators, you need the best lead commentators. Clive Everton will be at the top of that for me. And then the, the, the list of best player commentators. Now, of course, where the, where the water has been muddied is the BBC now. They, they sort of started this. I mean, they started this uh, way of doing it with sort of Ted Lowe, Jack Conn, Clive Everton. They were the lead commentators. You know, people like John Spencer, Jim Meadowcroft, John Virgo would be the, they call them summarizers over the co-commentators. And everyone knew what their roles were. So the start of the frame, Ted would speak. The frame would go on. Virgo would analyze the play. At the end, Ted would end the frame. That was very established how that was done. Of course, now 
they're all players. So actually that at the BBC has changed. But for most sports, you still have those defined roles. You look at something like tennis, you've got Andrew Castle, who used to be a, a tennis player. I think he may have been British number one, but he was certainly you know, a reasonably successful player. He's now the BBC's lead tennis, tennis commentator, and he commentates like a lead commentator. He doesn't commentate like a tennis player. They'll have Tim Henman or someone, John McEnroe with him at Wimbledon, and they will do most of the analysis. It's changed slightly in some other sports. Cricket, it seems... Um, What's changed in cricket is now everyone talks all the time. I mean, there's some test matches where you have three commentators at once, so they're all kind of fighting for room. But the established order of doing things is you would have the journalistic role, the lead commentator, you would have the player, and there would be a contrast between the two, which is why comparisons between a Clive Everton and a John Spencer, for instance, don't hold water because they're doing different jobs. Yeah, and I mean... Absolutely. I mean, I echo everything you've said there. I think what what added to Clive, I think Clive would have been you know, the best lead commentator anyway. But the fact he, he was also a very good player. I mean, you know, mm. Clive was a professional player. He didn't, didn't win a huge amount of matches, but I mean, he was playing at a professional level and, you know, did win a few matches along the way. So, I mean, to you know, to be that good as a journalist and a broadcaster, but also to have been a very good player and to understand the game as much as he did. I mean, that, that just made such an, an amazing package. Um, I was going to say, sorry to interrupt you, his key skill though, and this is the key skill in commentary, is the ability to use language. So it's the ability to distill his thoughts into, you know, a short sentence that just basically explains it. That's the thing. When people say, oh, you know, if you haven't won X amount of world titles, you can't commentate. Complete nonsense. Alan Manus and Neil Folds probably the two best commentators, uh, player commentators, you know, they won tournaments. They, did, they weren't multi-world champions, but that's not the point. They have, they're, they're clearly very intelligent and they have the ability to use language in a way that gets over to the viewers what they're saying. Um, sorry, I interrupted you. No, I'd more or less fin- finish the point on that. But, but uh, also, I mean, you know, and, and this was brought home again by that Crucible Classic series that we were talking about earlier. I mean, really, back in those days, to a large extent, there wasn't a great deal to it, you know, because if you if you had any kind of knowledge of the game at all, the, the level, the, the depth to which they went really wasn't that great at all. A lot of the time, there was a lot of just stating the obvious, really. Uh, in a lot of the commentary and you know nobody really thought anything much of it because I don't think anyone had really thought of, of, of different ways of doing it and it's sort of really only in the last 20 years or so largely I suppose led by people like Clive um, that, that that's all changed that it's much more analytical now and it's it's great when you when you have it matched up really well when you have a lead commentator who really gets the context and the information and knows how to use the words and then you've got a player who's got all the expertise in the world about the technical side of it and is very good at putting it across I, I will actually mention um, the World Grand Prix final earlier this year. Um, I'll have to say the commentary that Phil Yates and Stephen Hendry did on the last couple of frames of that match between Neil Robertson and Graham Dot. Honestly, you will not see better commentary on any sport anywhere on British television. I thought it was absolutely magnificent. And it was because the two of them coming from different angles. Uh, of, course, of course, Phil was a pretty good player himself. Nowhere near pro level, but, you know, good enough to know a lot about the technical side. I thought it just worked so well between the two of them. And that to me was an absolute masterclass in, in how commentary should be. But it's it's just changed beyond all recognition. When, when you look back on some of the things 20 or 30 years ago, you can listen to a commentary and really not get any insights and, and not learn anything by the end of the match that you didn't know at the start of it. Yeah, I think Hendry um, is almost like the perfect storm because he's he's got both. He's got the discipline 
and the vocabulary, and he doesn't overtalk Stephen. He'll just say he'll speak when he feels he needs to. But of course, because of what he's done, you want to hear what he's got to say, and and it's really good stuff. I mean, you look back, sort of the traditional, like when I was growing up. Okay, leaving snooker to one side, the sort of the commentators that I like listening to, there were probably three that I would put above all the others. David Coleman was one. He had an extraordinary voice that made it sound like whatever he was saying you know, was the truth. I mean, he had this authoritative voice. He was uh, football athletics and a well-known face as a presenter. Um, Barry Davis, very similar, mainly football, but did a lot of other sports. He always had a lot of integrity, I thought. Very intelligent, great turn of phrase. And the other one is Richie Benno. Now, Richie Benno from cricket, but he's the interesting one here, okay, because he was a very successful cricketer. He was captain of Australia and he had a great playing career. But here's the thing, okay, when he retired, he wanted to go into journalism and broadcasting. Now, today, if he said that, what they would do would be hand him a microphone and say, off you go, Richie, fill your boots. Back then what happened was, and we're talking kind of the 1960s here, what happened was the BBC sent him on a course and he had to shadow two established commentators from other sports, Peter O'Sullivan from horse racing and Harry Carpenter from boxing and, and rowing and various other sports. And he basically went around for about three months, just following them around, observing what they did, learning from, you know, the best. And so when he went in to commentate, he went in like he was a journalist. He got all that grounding. It was like going on a course. That doesn't happen now. You just handed the microphone. So you get situations like we had in the World Cup a few years ago where Phil Neville went Phil in. Neville. And his yeah. first live his first live commentary was on an England match being watched by like twenty million people, and it wasn't his fault that he, he was no good. He, no one told him how to do it, you know. So it's it, it's kind of it, they are disciplines, and they're different. Like I say, the different jobs you can't compare Martin Tyler to Gary Neville. They're two different roles, and I think personally, sport works better. Maybe some sports are different, but I think sport works better when there are defined roles when people know what they're supposed to be doing. I wonder at the BBC, do they even know who's going to finish a frame? Is it just the person who's, who's got the microphone in their hand? How do you know what you're going to say? Because some sometimes, you know, you want to end a frame with a with a particularly memorable line or just give it some journalistic spin. That's Listen, that's up to them how they want to do it. But I'm glad that we still have this traditional sort of separation between the roles because I think hopefully that's, be- hopefully that's better for the viewers. You mentioned there, Phil and Stephen, the World Grand Prix. I completely agree. The point is they were sticking to what they, they did best, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the thing about it is big stars probably wouldn't be willing to do that now. I think there's a bit of a sense of entitlement, not with all of them by any means, but with some big stars in, in sports, uh, you know, they do feel a sense of entitlement to have a media career afterwards. So I don't think they'd be willing to do that apprenticeship. As we are talking about commentators, you mentioned Barry Davies there. Mm. Great commentator, absolutely. But I was always more of a John Motson man. And for anyone listening outside the UK, whatever, John Motson was this legendary BBC commentator who was on for maybe 40 years or so. And I actually met him to do an interview with him. I should just tell this now because it was a really good, good, good story. I did an interview with him about five or six years ago. Now, the old thing, don't meet your heroes. Well, mm. it was massively disproved <laughs> that day because I had a great time with him. And he gave a wonderful interview and was, was you know, no sort of big I am about him at all. But when I arranged the interview, I went to London to do it. And I said, where will I meet you, John? And he said, oh, meet me in this hotel. Now, I'd never heard of it. But I went along and honestly, it was like a palace this amazing place. And I was wondering, is he staying here? But as as, as I meet him, he says to me, yeah, I, I, I just come in here sometimes. They let me come in, use the showers, that sort of thing. <laughs> and as, as we're walking through the lobby, he's like waving to everyone. Oh, hi, Jim. Hi, Mary. And then good afternoon, Mr. Watson. And I thought, what is, what is this mm. wonderful status he has in this palatial hotel? This shows you, you know, what a, what, what a big figure he is. But we sat down to start the interview. And anytime you're doing that in a public place, you know, you would always say, would you like a drink? No, you mean a cup of tea or coffee? 
boy, this was about 11 o'clock in the morning. So John says, um, uh, oh, well, are you going to have one? And I could see it this stage, the way things were heading. Before I knew it, he had ordered <laughs> two glasses of champagne that cost, I think, £32 each. Brilliant. I think when he was ordering it, he, he actually said to the guy serving, said, I'll have uh, two glasses of my regular champagne mm. or some words to that effect. So uh, it just shows you what a different world people like that live in. But it, it really was fantastic. Him and Brian Moore, for me, growing up, uh, you were just absolutely wonderful commentators. And uh, I never met Brian Moore, who sadly died uh, almost 20 years ago now. But it was great that day to meet one of my commentary heroes and for him to uh, to be so good and, you know, to not disappoint me in any way. Well, Motson was brilliant because he was an ultimate obsessive, wasn't he? You knew he prepared about as much as you could. But Brian Moore, actually, he's a good one to mention because I think he's a perfect example of in commentary where kind of a journalistic background helps because for all the preparation you can do, and football commentators have to do a lot, there are certain moments where you have to find the right line. Now, obviously, I know this is a very English-British thing, but Kenneth Wollstone famously when England won the 66 World Cup, so some people on the pitch, I think it's all over it is now. You couldn't have prepared that before the match. He just came into his head. Similarly, Brian Moore, I don't need to tell you as an Arsenal fan in 1989, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's up for grabs now. I mean, that's still a line people think of. It came into his head. It was absolutely perfect line for that moment, not something he could have scripted or prepared for, but because he had that kind of journalistic mindset, it was something that he came out with. And, you know, th- these, are the, these are the great voices. I think that sportsmen coming in to commentary have a lot to offer. And maybe, I mean, we're kind of, in as much as there's a running time, we're kind of overrunning. There are certain players I think certainly could do it. Bill Robertson is certainly one. I think he's got that analytical mind. Kyron yeah. Wilson, I did a couple of frames with at the shootout. I think he, he possibly in the future as well. Sean Murphy's already done it, and I think he's got certainly the, the enthusiasm for it. Equally, there are some there are some who don't want to do it. I mean, I know I spoke to, to Mark Williams, Mark Selby. They, they don't want to be commentators, even though they're multi-world champions. It, it's not always the right fit for everybody. Um, I think, you know, if, if you're going to do it, like you say, you've got you've got to take it seriously. It's not just something to earn money about. It's another career, actually. And it's a completely different career to playing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, anyway, just, just to underline yeah. what you're saying there, you know, when you said about the, um, the Brian Moore line, it's up for grabs now. I, honest, mm. I can quite honestly say I actually felt the hairs going up in the back yeah. of my neck, even hearing that line again. So, yeah. you know, just evokes those memories again, 31 years on it. And funny, you know, I was only thinking about this the other day. You mentioned the Kenneth Wollstone line, some people are on the pitch. For a really, really long time, that was always misquoted. And people mm. said that what he had actually said was, the crowd are on the pitch, which is completely <laughs> wrong. So it's amazing. It's so famous. The most famous line in, in British television commentary history, maybe the most <clears> famous <throat> line in British television, will stop. And yet, I think it was only probably around the time of Italia 90, actually, that people only started quoting it correctly for the first time. And again, the mo- just to finish this, the most famous line in Stuga commentary was, again, something you couldn't have prepared. Jack Harnham, when Cliff Thorburn was stood over the last black of the first maximum at the Crucible 983, simply said, good luck, mate, um, which was just fitted the, the moment perfectly. But again, it's not something you could prepare. Anyway, I hope that answers some of your questions about commentators. But I go back to what I say. If you're going to do a list of the best commentators, you actually need two lists because commentary is different jobs. There's, you, you might as well, if you're going to com- compare me to Alan McManus, you might as well compare me to someone like Hazel Irvin. They're different jobs, uh, but they all hopefully add, add something to it. You can read the article on the on the WST website as well, where we talk about this a bit more. Uh, we've been going so long, I might as well still do Book of the Week because I've, I've actually remembered it this week. Um, and this is a, a really interesting book, actually. It's... Uh, from 1989, published by Pelham Books, and it's called Griff, and it's the autobiography of Terry Griffiths. Now, it's an interesting book. Obviously, at this point, Terry was still very much a top player. It was sort of 10 years on from him winning the World Championship and just a year on from him reaching the World Final. 
for a second time where Steve Davis did for him. Steve comes out of the book really well, actually. It's clear Terry's got a lot of affection and respect for him. And Barry Hearn does as well. But there's also, it's a very honest book, this. And Terry talks a lot about the kind of, the difficulties of being away from home. What comes out of it is, because, you know, he was an ordinary family man before he became a professional. He had sort of ordinary jobs. He sold insurance. He was a bus conductor, postman, all these things. And then suddenly he becomes famous. He wins the World Championship as his first attempt, becomes a, a big star. He talks about going on Sports Review program, on Tizwas, all these sort of programs, and travelling away as part of the matchroom stable. He said even though they were treated really well, they went first class, he missed home. He missed you know, being at home, found that side of it quite difficult. And consequently, you might think a book about one of the top players of the 80s would be full of great stories about, you know, this happened and that happened. Actually, a lot of that side is missing for the simple reason that Terry would not have been a player who'd be hanging around in bars late at night, you know, getting drunk and jo joining in all that sort of hoopla. He'd, he'd just be in his hotel room and, and sort of when he played a match, if he won, he's through to the next round. If he loses, he's on his way home without sort of hanging around. But one thing that really interested me in this book, we talk a lot today quite rightly about sort of mental health in sport and in society in general, but certainly in sport and in snooker, you know, something that's talked about a lot more. And there's a very interesting and revealing passage in the book, where, which tells you that this is nothing new. It's always been there. It's from, I'm going to read it in a moment, but it's from 1980. So it's coming up to Terry's defense of the world title. He's had all this new stuff to, to, to get used to during the year. You know, the profile that he's got now as a, as a top sportsman, never mind the snooker professional the uh, demands on his time, all the things he had to do and demands on his family time as well. I mean, at one point, <laughs> at one point, you know, the, he talks about um, he, he's friendly with this male hairdresser who comes around to his house to do his and, and his oh, wife yeah. and his wife and Annette's hair, you know, because it's just convenient. He comes around, does their hair. And this kind of went around, oh, the hairdressers go around his house. Next thing, there's a reporter from a tabloid at his door asking him if he's gay. You know, I mean, that's, that's how kind of ludicrous it became at that time for snooker players. They had these, you know, sort of ridiculous stories going around about them. And Terry found all that quite difficult to cope with. But it's clear as well by this stage, coming up to his defence of the title, he's finding things difficult to cope with in general. I'll just read this because I think it's, it's an insight into snooker players then and now and, and what's sort of going on in their head. So he's doing an exhibition with Dennis Taylor. That's, that's about the size of it. And he says, um, here we go. He said, uh, he said, OK, so there's a dozen or so kids there. There's people hanging around. He said, I didn't realise it at the time. I was in a terrible state mentally. I did an, an interview and then the kids there wanted autographs. By now I was panicking about the match, which was already running late. So I mentioned to Dennis, we'd have to slip in quickly before any more kids caught us for autographs. Then this woman, who was obviously one of the kids, one of the boys' grannies, said quietly, aren't you proud that the kids have asked for your autograph? Well, that did me in and tears came to my eyes. It had hit me like a ton of bricks because I knew she was right and I was wrong. I could feel myself filling up and I said to Dennis, quick, let's get inside. Dennis realised I was in a bit of a bad way, although I was trying not to show him that. We went in. Up until that time, I'd been playing for months in front of people, happily mixing with the crowds and chatting and signing autographs. Now suddenly everyone was getting to me. It was really heavy. Of course, it was an accumulation of the last nine months, and I could not handle it anymore. The match finished. I remember all I wanted to do was go around and sign autographs for everyone there to make up for what had happened earlier. It made me realise how important the public image and things like autograph signings really are and how lucky I was that people asked for them. Really, I'd had a breakdown and didn't realise it. And he goes on, he talks more and more about that. He goes home and talks to his wife about it. But it just shows you, you know, we think of that, the 80s, oh, it was all fun and, and so on. Not a bit of it. They had pressure as well. And I think snooker is such a, an individual sport. You know, this is an area really that is still largely unexplored. Ronnie O'Sullivan, of course, has spoken about his own problems in that area. I think there'd be many others who would understand what Terry was talking about there. And, of course, particularly now, actually, particularly just to finish the point, particularly now. Yeah, go on, sorry. 
if you, I mean, players are accessible, but you've only got to turn down one selfie and word goes around maybe on Twitter online somewhere. So-and-so is, you know, is ignorant, even like his fans, but you don't always know what's going on in someone's life is the point. Well, Graham Dodd's book, actually, I don't know if you've read mm. that one. Uh, yeah. Frame of mind, it's actually called, because so yeah. much of it is about the mental health problems that he had, which sounded like really, really terrible what he went through. Um, I've just picked that book because I'm sitting here. I have all my sports books on the shelves next to me. So I dug out the Griff book and I just looked. There's a picture of him sitting, um, eating. With, they're on a trip to China and Neil Folds is sitting next to him. And Neil is tucking into whatever the food is. And Terry is looking a bit curious at what's been eaten. And the caption is, I'd prefer to go hungry, but the strange eating habits of the Chinese have no effect on Neil's appetite. I mean, if you said something like that now, you'd be accused of being Chinophobic. There'd be a, mm. a whole sort of racism storm surrounding us. But uh, also, it took me 19 years to read that book because wow. I, I <laughs> a slow reader, slow reader. Yeah. Well, what, what happened was I, I got it. I got it a few years after it came out, and I read a few chapters of it. And then I was doing my final exams in school, so I, you know, didn't read any more of it. And then I was going on a golf trip to France, and I thought, oh, I'll bring this that with me. I, I just found it. Thought, I completely forgot to ever read the rest of that book. I brought it with me. I was on a golf trip and my roommate snored so badly that it was the only <laughs> night in my life that I literally did not sleep for one moment. The snoring was so bad that I actually moved to a different hotel the next day. Not even a different room, a different hotel. But to fill that sleepless night, I went to my bag, dug out Griff and went and sat in the toilet because I couldn't sit in the bed. It was just, it was just too loud. It was incredible. So I actually went and pretty much read the rest of it in a <laughs> nice but, uh, yeah. Well, it's a good book, actually. One of, one of the better snooker books, in fact, um, because it does, you know, it's not light in any way. It doesn't gloss over things. It does go into very serious topics and does give a, a really good uh, account, actually, of how his life just changed so dramatically uh, with that extraordinary fortnight he had in, in 1979. Well, that story you've told, I think it's not not the first time Terry Griffiths has kept people up half the night. But um, there's there's one of the passages when I, there's one of the passages when I mention he's got this friend Peter who's um, also Welsh and sort of maybe not been outside Wales too much. And they're going to London for some sort of formal do. And he said Terry says in the book he says as we're driving into town he kept saying to me I don't know why you want to meet these people from London they're all bloody crooks too posh and too smart by half my liking. Well it's it's good that that's that's not the case anymore isn't it? It's good that we're not run by people like that anymore. Anyway that um that brings that to a close. The book is Griff and yeah I think it's it's revealing. I, I, I don't think he sort of he doesn't sort of whitewash anything. He's very honest Terry and the book ends he's quite downbeat actually. He sort of says you know. Snooker has been good to me, but it's not all my life. But you know, my family and my life, which of course is is is, is true for Terry. Uh, one of the great guys in the sport, actually, Terry Griffiths. Not just a great player, but one of the great figures in our sport. Absolutely. I think we might even be longer than the Neil Robertson episode, which was long enough. So we should stop I was now. The very same thing, actually. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. That's probably one of the best. If you're new to the podcast series, check that one out because that was really good. Um, you can anything we've mentioned this week. Do do uh, if you want to discuss them, get in touch. Snooker scene podcast at mail.com. And also, a few people have asked how you get the Crucible Almanac, and it's, it's not straightforward. Chris Downer uh, produces it every year. Basically, you can only get through Snooker Scene. I'm aware though that the Snooker Scene website is not currently live. So, my, my suggestion is if you if you're interested in buying the Almanac, email me at this address, and I'll just pass them on to Chris. You know, and and, and then he can get back to you. Um, and also, and I always forget to mention this. Um, so a lot of people have found the podcast through reviews on, on Apple Podcasts, if that's how you get your podcasts. So if you enjoy the podcast, if you want to leave us a review, that will help other people find us. And this is the last podcast, of course, of the, of the well, not of the lockdown, because the lockdown continues, but of the non 
snooker time because the play is coming back next week. However, listen, we'll continue if people are interested in, in listening. It might be slightly different next week because I'm going to be at the tournament. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm happy to uh, to continue and, you know, we'll uh, we'll uh, keep talking snooker because, you know, what else are we going to do? We'll, we'll flog on. And just, just one final thought. I came across a thing, actually, it ties up a number of things we were talking about. I came across a thing on YouTube the other night. It was the end of the final of the 1984 Ladder Classic, the one that Tony <laughs> Neal should have won. Right. It, it, it has an extraordinary finish, and there's only about seven or eight minutes of it there, and I won't give it away what happens, but something very unusual happens to, to, to swing it around. But it, now, I didn't watch it at the time, because I wasn't really into snooker yet. I didn't get into it for another couple of years after that. But I do remember that the first snooker match I ever remember watching was one of Mio's matches earlier in that tournament. I think it was against Rex Williams, the 1984 Ladder Classic. And it made me think that might be something people might take um, mail in about. Their first memory, literally the very mm. first match that they ever watched. So uh, I'm sure we get a few uh, few good mails out of that. Yeah, I don't remember, actually, the first match I watched. So I will have to sit that one out. But um, I've made up for it since. I've watched a lot since. Anyway, um, thanks for listening. If you made it this far, if you made it this far, you do actually, you are actually eligible for a prize, which we'll send to you in the post. Um, but thank you for listening. As I say, we're happy to continue. But, of course, next week, there will be snooker on. It starts on ITV. And if you're outside the UK, Eurosport as well, um, British time, te- uh, well, three o'clock, ten to three. ITV come on air, ITV four, and then basically it's all day long. There's going to be six matches on each table, and it's a chance to see all the players again. There'll be a few dodgy haircuts, I think, uh, but you know, we'll, we'll maybe a few people have put on a bit of weight. But listen, it's good to have snooker back. We're looking forward to that. Thank you for listening. We'll see you very soon. Sports Social Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.